Let me start with my title, Thinking Sex at Harvard. It's a pun on another title with a local reference. Thinking Sex is Gail Rubin's field-changing essay on how societies arrange their systems of sexual taboos. This is Gail speaking a few years ago at the History Museum in the Castro. She wrote Thinking Sex in her early 30s while a doctoral student in cultural anthropology at Michigan. But by then she was already living here in San Francisco to work on dissertation about dissident sexual communities. One of the great evenings of my life. Don't worry, this is a safe story. <laughs> One of the great evenings of my life came in April 1997 when Gail took me on a walking tour of Folsom Street. Stopping every few yards, she would tell stories. This building used to be, and then it became, and the most notorious owner was. Um, thinking sex may include the critique of abstract categories, but it also requires the patient observation of how people actually live into the sexual categories handed to them, how they inhabit those categories and so refashion them. I teach Gale's essay every year, sometimes every semester. I taught it this past Monday in my general education course. Let me describe that course as one example of thinking sex at Harvard now. For those of you who uh, aren't familiar with the intricacies of Harvard's undergraduate curriculum, uh, Gen Ed, as it's called, is what remains of Harvard's undergraduate core. My course is entitled Sex and Ethical Reasoning, a modest title, really. Uh, it, it satisfies an ethical reasoning requirement that is about to become an ethics and civics requirement under a new version of the curriculum. I designed the course on two bets. The first was that many Harvard students might have some interest in sex. <clears throat> the second bet was that I could use that interest to lure them into thinking not only about their sexual ethics, but about why human beings need ethics at all. The easiest way for me to describe the course is to perform a short clip from the opening session. So imagine yourself in Seaver Hall 113. For those of you who don't know it, the, the room is a sloped amphitheater. It holds 190. It's done up in, an, in what I would call an Edwardian burlesque motif, <laughs> uh, by which I mean that the seats are incredibly uncomfortable and very garish. Uh, so, so I'm standing at the lectern out there. You have Widener Library and University Hall and Memorial Church. In here, there are about 250 students trying to squeeze into those 190 seats because it's shopping week and the class is capped at 150. 
Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to the tensions of an awkward first date. There may be other tensions as well because this is a course you know like I mean about sex. Of course, so is a date. Or maybe what's really got you worried this morning is that other word, ethics. Let me address your tensions by talking about what this course will ask of you. Then you get to choose. I'll give you a picture to look at while I talk. This canvas is called The Lovers. It was painted by René Magritte in 1928 and hangs now in the Museum of Modern <coughs> Art, New York. Like most things related to sex, it provokes competing interpretations. For some, the painting represents the shame that prevents us from showing ourselves even to our lovers. For others, it shows how erotic desire covers our eyes when we gaze at a person we desire. We never kiss anything but the fabric of our own fantasy. Whatever Magritte had in mind, I like to use the image as a little test of erotic assumptions. Did you see this painting immediately as a white man kissing a white woman? We do see a little patch of skin, although it's hard to tell its color and it might well be latex. Other than that, we have no information about these bodies and certainly none about their genital configurations. We don't know if this is a man and a woman, or a trans man and a trans woman, or two lesbians, or two gay men, or someone with a passion for department store mannequins. <laughs> notice, notice how little we actually see of these bodies and how much we think we know about them. I'm very interested in assumptions about sex, in yours and in mine. If you look me up on Amazon, you'll find an unusual assortment of books. Some of them are about the technical history of Christian ethics or contemporary critiques of it. Other books are about the history of sex and contemporary quarrels over it. But by now, you might be asking yourself another question about me. Why have they sent an old man to talk to us about sex? <laughs> to which the answer is, welcome to civilization. <laughs> this is Americus Vespucci discovering America, or according to the caption, awakening her. Note the gender relations, of course, but also what might be described as a contrast of presumed modesty. <laughs> I think the lesson is that we're supposed to dress like the old man wearing armor on his loins. The word civilization implies the regulation of sex. Sexual ethics, in particular, typically expresses social hierarchies. Rules for sex are one obvious way, perhaps an unusually effective way, for those with status, often older males of a privileged class, caste, or group, to exert power over those without it, often younger females of any kind, but also young men or slaves 
or foreigners or anyone else. We will be talking this semester about sex as a circuit for the creation or exercise of political and social power. But I'm also interested in a more specific answer to your unspoken question. Why is an old man going to give us lectures about sex? To which another answer is, welcome to college. <laughs> For those of you who weren't there, this is the great Harvard rebellion of 1819, <laughs> also known as a food fight. It resulted in the expulsion of the entire sophomore class, including Ralph Waldo Emerson. Historically, the American college has been one of the great scenes of sexual regulation. When men were the only ones allowed to attend college, they were herded together at regular intervals in chapel or in the gym for a stern lecture by the chaplain, the president, the dean of students from coach, in which they would be threatened with dire consequences for yielding to lust, consequences divine and physical, but also civil and academic. If you do these filthy things, God will punish you, and you will be riddled by disease. But we, the college authorities, will also punish by public shaming and expulsion. When women were finally allowed to have colleges of their own or admitted to men's college, a similar scene was repeated after carefully segregating the sexes because, of course, people of the same sex can't possibly be attracted to each other. Then the dean of women students or nurse or coach would deliver the stern lecture adding to the standard threats the strongest language about saving yourself for marriage and motherhood. I'm sure that you've heard about this version of sexual ethics before. Perhaps you even experienced some of it, depending on what kind of high school you attended. But you probably regard it as ancient history so far as American universities are concerned. For some decades now, those of us who live and work in large universities have been assuring ourselves that all these practices of sexual regulation were banished decades ago by something called the sexual revolution. Sometimes we go further. We proclaim that our whole society has rejected moralistic superstitions to discover that sex is just another human behavior subject only to rules of rational action and maybe one or two special considerations about hygiene. Beyond that, we don't need a sexual ethics, so says the myth, and we certainly don't believe that secular universities should be enforcing one. But wait, that story isn't quite right or that story isn't over. In the last few years, we have found ourselves in a growing national debate about sexual regulation on university campuses, about restoring not just rules for sexual activity, but regular training in something that looks a lot like 
a new sexual ethics. What is more important, there is a growing recognition that the so-called sexual revolution didn't erase the questions that most of us have about living our sexual lives. We may be a little less ashamed than Americans were 50 years ago. Maybe. <laughs> we may have a little more information. We may have seen more porn or had more sexual partners, although each generation thinks that it invents sex. So. But we still face fundamental questions about how to integrate sex into our lives. Indeed, the loud claims of liberation may have made us more anxious about sex life since unfettered choice increases anxiety. And I don't even speak about the present political chaos which has everything to do with policing sex and gender. That's what this course is about, addressing once again basic questions of sexual ethics without any illusions about the sexual revolution, without the mythology of a triumphant sexual liberation. We'll cover as many questions as we can reach in 12 weeks. Here are some of them. Before we go in search of sexual ethics, we have to ask what the phrase means. What is sex for sexual ethics? Does it refer to particular bodily organs or actions, to reproductive capacities, to certain desires and emotions, to specific shames and vulnerabilities? How many fields or kinds of knowledge do we need to think about sexual ethics? Side comment, one of the things I stress constantly is that sexual ethics is an intrinsically interdisciplinary inquiry. And in what ways might supposed knowledge about sexual ethics be particularly vulnerable to the influence of social assumptions or the pressure of political conditions? Side comment, yesterday morning we were talking about sex panics in American history, beginning with the 1950s sociopath sex murderer panic. Um, think Anthony Perkins and Psycho. Um, and coming up to the down low sex panic um, about black men who are, because they are apparently stigmatized by black communities, having sexual relations that end up infecting their wives. <coughs> sexual topics are prominent in the most influential texts of Western civilization. We tend to take religious preoccupation with sex for granted. But it is worth asking how and why sex became a problem for Judaism, and then in other ways for Christianity. It's also worth noticing that sex was ethically problematic for ancient philosophical schools apart from Judaism and before Christianity. Many of the undergraduates assume that the only forms of human thought that have ever attempted to regulate sex are conservative religions as if sex weren't a problem, for example, for Plato. After sampling 
these authoritative Western texts on sexual ethics, philosophical and religious, we turn to a series of controversial topics in their recent versions. Side comment, this should be the interesting part for all of you. <laughs> because this is, an, this is actually the range of topics for an undergraduate course in sexual ethics right now, right? So what part of what I'm trying to show you is what a course on sexual ethics has to talk about right now. We begin with a, with a unit on sexual perversion and sexual identity. Does the notion of perversion still have any ethical use? I never get any takers for that in the class. <laughs> Ought we to replace it with the supposedly neutral notion of sexual identity? <laughs> but what kind of thing is a sexual identity? Is everyone required to have one? How do you get one? And how is it supposed to be related to all the other sorts of identities people claim or have imposed on them, especially gender and race? these questions about identity make the class very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Among current American controversies in sexual ethics, disagreements over rape and sexual assault are among the sharpest, especially on university campuses. Moving carefully, we will try to clarify some of the basic issues underneath these disagreements, beginning with issues of definition. Mm -hmm. What is rape? Is it primarily a sexual crime or an act of violence? Again, what is the ethical difference between an assault and a sexual assault? What are the ethical consequences of rape on a person who is raped, on a person who commits rape, on the families or communities around them? And what are the obligations of various sorts of communities to prevent rape or to punish those who committed. You all know, or you should know, that this topic will bring us face to face with current debates at Harvard about Title IX, its interpretation and enforcement. At the moment, it is completely unclear what will happen to Title IX under the new presidential administration. This part of the syllabus may need to be adjusted very quickly. The only sexual sin mentioned specifically in the so-called Ten Commandments of the Jewish and Christian scriptures is adultery. It was also, until fairly recently, a serious crime. In Massachusetts, I believe that it is still punishable by up to three years in prison. I have the citation, if you'd like. <laughs> Why has adultery been counted a serious sin or crime? Because it's the violation of marriage vows or of the family unit? Because it's dishonesty? Is it the possibility of illegitimate birth? Dreadful phrase, illegitimate birth. Is there no adultery if there is no possibility of birth? And what if spouses agree to an open relationship or believe, say on religious grounds, that marriage is not in principle restricted to two members? Why shouldn't polyamory be an ethical possibility for adult relationships, especially since it seems to happen rather often? 
Many kinds of ethical arguments, religious, philosophical, social, have been made against pornography and prostitution, two problematic words. Here again, we will try to clarify their meanings and to assess ethical assumptions. For example, is it un unethical for an adult to consent to sexual acts for direct payment? What if the payment is indirect or non-monetary? Growing up as a second wave feminist, I was taught to call this marriage. <laughs> and, <laughs> Thank you. Yes. and why does this differ ethically from the sale of other bodily services? We will then raise similarly basic questions about the definition and ethical analysis of contemporary pornography. For example, if two lovers exchange erotic pictures, is that pornography? Does it become pornography if the pictures circulate more widely? Is there an ethical difference between the commercial production or circulation of pornography and its private consumption? Is addiction to pornography ethically culpable? Is there such a thing as addiction to pornography? Finally, we'll do our best to formulate ethical questions about the new cases that arise from the unprecedented availability of pornography via the internet and from virtual sex. Is virtual sex real sex? If so, is virtual rape ethically equivalent to physical rape? And when do people become ethically responsible for indulging or expressing their sexual fantasies? Or are fantasies always fine so long as they remain fantasies? There are a lot of topics here, like the use of hookup apps. One of the favorite sessions of the semester <laughs> is on hookup apps. Uh, we actually perform together a kind of ethical analysis of the information that appears on the current user profile for Grindr which is uh, one of the male male apps, uh, and which asks them very interesting questions. For example, what is your relationship status? One of the choices is married in a committed relationship. What are you doing on Grindr? <laughs> Excuse me? We also, at the end of every semester, have two sessions in which the students get to nominate and vote on topics of most interest to them. The topic that came out on top of the list last spring was the topic of asexuality. And we had a lively and very interesting discussion about why asexuality had to be an identity. Why does everything have to be an identity? Let me stop the performance there. I hope you're ready to sign up for the class. <laughs> I say that because uh, I'm always trying to hit a certain enrollment target because I want to employ TFs because they need work. We can talk about any part of that or other issues besides, but I just want in the next few minutes to add another piece of my teaching, namely the graduate courses I teach on sexual ethics at the Div School. And I'm not going to sample those courses. 
I do want to try to describe some of the larger issues in them. Because if the charge in that undergraduate course is to persuade people that there is something worth thinking about in sexual ethics, right? That, is, that it's not just another boring imposition by another heavy-handed institution, that they actually need sexual ethics to lead fully human lives. If that's the work of that undergraduate course, the work in the graduate courses in the Div School is to try to figure out a way forward, especially but not only for religious traditions, in thinking about sexual ethics. So the work in the Div School is the work of moving sexual ethics into the future. So let me just try to describe some of the features that come up in that work. Harvard's Divinity School is, I'm sure you know, proudly interreligious. The faculty understands this as an extension of our original mission to be a non-sectarian school, to apply no test of orthodoxy for student admissions or faculty appointments. That's the founding principle. That's the reason the Divinity School exists as a separate school within Harvard. I myself am one example of how that plays out. Uh, because as you may have guessed, I am what used to be called a notorious homosexual. And yet, HDS hired me originally into an endowed chair in Christian ethics. I'm the senior Christian ethicist at Harvard Divinity School. <laughs> yeah. During the 375th birthday uh, celebration, I was standing in the faculty room of University Hall, which is filled with all the portraits of the former presidents. Some of them are grand, magnificent works of art. But the early presidents are are what I like to think of as the shriveled Puritan heads. They're, they're, these, they're these little tiny canvases stuck way up near the ceiling. All these men frowning down at you, wearing identical black clothing. And I looked up at those heads and I thought, oh dear, if you could only see who's teaching theology now. Um, but, but a more vivid example of the interreligious character of the school is the enormous range of religious traditions represented in almost any class. So when I teach a class in sexual ethics at the Div School, I face a classroom that typically contains wildly different versions of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and Buddhism. I also have students who name themselves as nuns. I don't mean habit-wearing, I mean N-O-N-E-S as belonging to no organized religious group, but still deeply concerned with religious questions. So think of this as the range of religious or non-religious identifications within which a Div School class has to operate. These identifications are cross-cut or complicated by the fact that students come to the course looking for knowledge or skills useful in different ways. Those who come from so-called conservative religious groups often want to learn analyses or arguments that will help them to advocate for change in official teachings, or in some cases to defend official teachings. 
those who come from so-called liberal groups may be looking to extend denominational changes already underway. Other students who may identify themselves with non-religious groups may be looking to religious traditions for resources in articulating sexual ethics for nuns. So let's call these the advocacy functions of sexual ethics, or if you like, the activist functions. And a third axis that really shapes the way we have to teach at the school is that deeper down, more urgent, there are the personal needs that students bring into the classrooms for themselves and for those they hold in care. People want help in shaping sexual lives that make sense as part of their lives. They want to do this for themselves. They want to do it for those around them. Let's call these the healing functions of sexual ethics, if you'll forgive the medical metaphor. All I'm trying to do here is to give you a very rough map of the context for teaching sexual ethics at HDS. There are other things to be added. The situation is actually very complicated. This is what makes teaching at Harvard so extraordinarily wonderful, is that whether you're teaching undergraduates or graduates, you are faced with enormously diverse, very talented, very articulate, very creative people, just like you, right? So these are the people who are coming into the class, and they have this range of difference in their relation to sexual ethics. So what, as a teacher, what can I possibly do to hold all of this diversity together? What can I do to prevent the course from being a superficial survey or a mere scatter? My hunch over the years is that what holds all these relations together is a shared historical situation, a, a set of shared tasks that arise from where we find ourselves in US cultural and religious history, or world history, so far as there is such a thing. We stand at the end of an extraordinarily rapid change in religious teaching on sexual matters. No matter what traditional groups may claim, no religious body in the United States is teaching the same views of sex that it was teaching a hundred years ago. I will stake my reputation on that claim. This change has been driven by many forces, from the emancipation of women, through the spread of psychoanalysis, to the invention of oral contraceptives, and now social media. The changes have been so rapid that most religious groups have spent the last century playing catch-up. They have either imported supposedly scientific results and accepted new social views uncritically, or they have wasted all of their energy in denial of one sort or another. Neither uncritical appropriation nor undifferentiated rejection is a good way to do serious thinking about sex. Religious ethicists, religious communities need instead to consider basic categories 
and in the rules built around them, to strengthen the means of religious formation, and to learn more about sex by paying attention to emerging ways of life. Let me give you just two examples and then I'll stop. My examples are both Christian, since that's my area of research. First example, since at least 1950, Christian writers have been struggling with the fact that there is no word in New Testament Greek or Biblical Hebrew that corresponds to the modern category homosexuality. <laughs> Just <laughs> Whatever certain passages in the Christian Bible are talking about, they are not talking about what we mean by the category of homosexuality. As a Christian ethicist, what do you do with that fact? Do you refuse to use the modern category because it has no biblical equivalent? Do you just use the modern category and pretend that is what Christians have been talking about for two millennia, although it isn't? That's what a lot of Bible translators do. Or do you try to make a new category that will preserve whatever is true in the old and new ways of talking? My second example, my last. <clears throat> relatively large, relatively public communities of women who love women and men who love men are still fairly recent, historically speaking. There are smaller closed networks that we can identify in earlier centuries, but the evidence for relatively open communities at large scale really appears after World War II. That's not more than 70 years, which is a very short segment in the timelines of the major religions. Moreover, as you know, the granting of full civil rights to the members of such communities is much more recent than that. I remember standing on Castro the day the U.S. Supreme Court announced its decision in Lawrence v. Texas, uh, which was the case effectively striking down sodomy laws. So historically speaking, we are still very near the beginning of thinking about the varieties of human sexuality which is why someone like Gail Rubin, who arrived here in 1978, could reach back in her interviews almost to the beginning of community memories in Soma. Instead of trying to produce complete systems of sexual ethics, instead of trying to settle all the questions at once, could we first think about who people actually are and what they are actually doing? That's what I try to do in my courses alongside my students at HDS. End of lecture. Let's talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs>